Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Okay, everyone, here we go. We're going into the upper room with Jesus, and I want to just help us get some context for this whole thing. Now, in this moment, as we listen to Jesus teach us, we have to keep in mind that it is less than 24 hours away from Jesus' death. This whole series of teachings that we get in chapters 13 to 17 all takes place on the night before he was arrested and crucified. In addition to that, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples, not only for his death, but to understand the significance and the meaning of what he was doing on the cross. For them, it is going to look like he has completely, totally failed to do what he set out to do. And so he's trying to help them understand the true significance of his death, but also the calling that is on their lives as his followers and disciples, what it means for them and also for us to be his apprentices and his disciples and messengers to the world. Now, if you remember from last week when Mark did his amazing teaching, he led us through Jesus's washing of the disciples' feet. Now, in that act, Jesus was symbolically illustrating the true meaning of his death on the cross, what it meant for him to love us to the full extent. And for him, it meant humbling himself and getting down and washing and cleansing us at the, in the dirtiest places of our lives, ultimately cleansing us of sin. But in addition to that, he's also giving the disciples an example, not just of what he's going to do for them, but also what it means for us to love one another. He's giving us an example for us to follow. Now, in that context, we also see a few other things in today's reading. We're going to see Judas betraying Jesus. He's going to go out into the night to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he's going to predict Peter's denial. So it's with that we pick up in John chapter 13, verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When when he was gone, Jesus then turned to his disciples and he said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will, be, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Okay, right here, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but get this, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me 
three times. Now, here we are. In this moment, Jesus brings the disciples and he brings us to the heart of his teaching and all of the investment that he has made in his disciples and even the very purpose of his life. Right here, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, here's the question, okay? Why does Jesus call this a new command, right? What's the reason for that? Because it's not as if the Old Testament didn't also call us to love one another. Why is this a new command? Earlier, when Jesus has asked, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? He said, to love the Lord your God. He's quoting the Old Testament here. To love the Lord your God. And then he goes on and he says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that part comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it says, to love one another as you love yourself. But see, Jesus is calling us now to a higher love. What he's saying here is this is a new command because you're no longer being called to love each other at that standard, the standard of how you love yourself. Instead, now I'm calling you to love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus is saying that is an even higher calling because Jesus loves us, get this, even more than we love ourselves. What does it mean to love one another as Jesus has loved us? How exactly has Jesus loved us? Well, when he washes the disciples' feet, he's illustrating something for us. But as he's approaching the cross, in the midst of these really important moments, Judas betraying him and predicting Peter's denial and betrayal as well, we're going to learn something really important about how Jesus loves us. And to do that, I want to call in Martin Luther King Jr. as our guide. He's going to help us unpack what this higher love really means for Jesus. But first, listen to this great statement by Martin Luther King Jr. He said, love for enemies is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. Let me say that again. Love for enemies is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. This command, he says, is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Now, because of the way that Martin Luther King lived his life, I mean, this guy had enemies, and we know that from how his life and his death. And so for him to say this, this is not just pie-in-the-sky talk. Martin Luther King Jr. has something really profound, and there's this bridge here. The higher love, the new command that Jesus is calling us to is ultimately about our commitment to love our enemies. Let me unpack that in this message here. And here's the main idea. Everyone can follow Jesus into this higher love by learning to love their enemies in three specific ways. And to do that, I'm going to use Martin Luther King Jr.'s key insights into Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about loving our enemies. And to do that, I want to go to Matthew 5 for a moment and just remind us of the higher love that Jesus gave us when he called us to love our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43, it says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what regard reward will you get? Or you could replace this, if you love those who agree with you, if you love those who see things the way that you see things, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that, right? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. had a commitment to teach on Matthew 5 and the call to love our enemies at least once every other year. He even says that this teaching was at the foundation of his philosophy and theology of life and at the very core of everything he did with civil rights. So I want to bring out a few key insights that Martin Luther King Jr. gives us from this passage from a sermon that he gave in 1957 at Dexter Baptist Church on November 17th, right? So here's a couple key insights about loving our enemies and stepping up to this higher love of Jesus. Number one, if we want to love our enemies, number one, we need to learn to forgive our enemies. Listen to this, forgiveness. We must develop, he says, and maintain the capacity to forgive. And he goes on to say that without forgiveness, it's actually impossible to love anyone especially our enemies. Now, he unpacks why. Listen to this great quote. He says, because returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to an already dark night devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only love can do that. He goes on to say that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In fact, he goes on to say that hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, resulting in a descending spiral of destruction. Now, that's a profound concept, that when we choose to respond to someone with hate or with bitterness or resentment, we are only multiplying the darkness in the world. And what he he calls this the chain reaction of evil. And so forgiveness, he argues, alone breaks that chain reaction for a couple key reasons. Number one, forgiveness removes the barriers within us to reconciliation. Now, when he talks about forgiveness, he's talking to an all-black church at a time when they're experiencing lynching, they're being hosed down, they're having dogs unleashed on them, people are firebombing people's churches, they're being stoned, they're being hit with clubs. So this is not sentimentality. I mean, really to forgive is to forgive someone who maybe hit you over the head with a stick, with a baton, or to love someone who hosed you down with high pressure hoses or unleashed a dog on you or threatened to lynch you. Uh, This is serious stuff. But his point is that the victim must learn to forgive the oppressor. Number two, he's like, The reason why forgiveness is so important is because it is a catalyst for creating an atmosphere for a fresh start. Now, he goes on to qualify forgiveness. Forgiveness, he says, does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. Forgiveness is not excusing 
something evil or wrong that someone has done to us. And that means that it's not a reason that forgiveness doesn't mean that we stay in abusive relationships. And it doesn't mean that we disregard healthy boundaries to protect us in relationships where people are abusive. But he's saying that by forgiving somebody, we allow the possibility for God to reconcile. Number two, if the first is forgiveness, the second is to see the good in our enemy. He he says, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor, that's an interesting phrase, enemy neighbor, that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor never quite expresses all that they are. This is a really profound idea. He goes on to say that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. Now, just pause for a moment. Draw to mind someone who has offended you, hurt you, someone like who really you could feel like was out for your, was out against you with ill intent, meant harm to you with their words or their actions. Someone who betrayed you, really let you down. What he's saying is that you need, you can never afford as a child of God to lose sight of the good in that person. Because as he said, there is some good in the worst of us and there is some evil in the best of us. Now that is a powerful statement and that can only come from someone who is an apprentice to Jesus. This kind of ethic, it doesn't come from the ethics of any other religious system. It comes from the radical teaching of Jesus who said, before you go pull the splinter out of your brother's eye, you should pull the plank out of your own. I think this is such an important teaching because it helps us humanize those we are tempted to hate and despise. And I think this is even helpful, not just with our enemies, but when we're having conflict with somebody, when we're having conflict with a friend or a spouse or our children or someone in our church, because it helps us to focus not just on the things we didn't like, the things that we hated in what they said or did, but it helps us focus on the good and maybe even the best intentions of what people have done or said to us. When we only focus on what we didn't like, we form a one-dimensional caricature of that person. This reminds us that every human being is made in God's image and that this side of heaven, no one, even our worst enemies, is beyond God's redeeming love. And it allows us to be God's agents of reconciliation, even with our enemies. And number three, so forgiveness, see the good in our enemies. And number three, he goes on to say that we need to win their friendship. Get this, this is where he goes, he crosses a line and goes above and beyond. And he says, we must not seek to defeat and humiliate our enemy, but to win their friendship and understanding. I mean, how do you even engage with that, right? Okay, fine, I'll forgive them. I'll try to see the good in them, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. You know what? In, in some cases, this might be the case. There may be some cases of abuse. I've talked to some people in marital situations where the relationship is so abusive, they, there just cannot be a continuing relationship. But in other cases where it's not that severe, there is opportunity to not just run away and withdraw from the person, but to seek to win their friendship. And he goes on to say why, why this is so important. This is one of the most profound teachings that he gives about loving our enemies. Listen to this. He says, 
Because love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Now that sounds like Jesus. Now I want to illustrate this, and he does actually in his sermon. He illustrates this example with from uh, Abraham Lincoln's life. And he talks about how during Abraham Lincoln's campaigning for the presidency, there was this guy named Edwin Stanton who opposed Abraham Lincoln so vehemently that he would viciously attack Lincoln, insulting him, making fun of his big ears and his tall, lanky frame, mocking uh, Abraham Lincoln, calling him an idiot and a fool. But despite all of that, Abraham Lincoln never condescended to that level of vitriol. Well, eventually we know that he won the presidency. And when Lincoln won the presidency, he chose Edwin Stanton, this guy, as his secretary of war. Maybe because he felt the heat of this guy's warpath. But someone on Abraham Lincoln's cabinet asked him, how could you bring this guy onto your team? And to this woman, he responded, get this, he said, Madam Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? That's amazing. What? Now that is presidential character. I remember at one time um, being in the soccer field and I was coaching my kids and there was this, it was a heated game. It was really close. We were the two top teams in the league and it was just blow for blow, lots of goals. We were tied neck to neck and it was the second half and there was this moment where one of our, our teammates got really hurt by one of their teammates and I was so upset. Our kid's on the ground and I actually walked on the field really upset. You're not supposed to do that. But I walked on the field to stop the play and I told the referee, hey, look, this kid needs to be carded. He, this, this kind of rough play should not be allowed. Now, I shouldn't have done that. And that was a huge mistake on my part. In response, the other coach came on the field. Now, the play took place all the way on by our sideline and he walked all the way over to the, our side of the field. And things got so heated between us that he squared away with me and said, hey, you want to go right now? You want to fight? And I was just blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy wants to fight in front of all our kids and all these families. I put my hand out and I said, bro, look, I don't want to fight. And I'm sorry for upsetting you. I just want to make peace. He just glared at me and walked away. Well, the next day, uh, I was at all-star tryouts and I was signing my kid up and I look over and I see that coach. And there he is with a bunch of other parents who had kids that were trying out, other parents from his team. And I had this impulse to go talk to him. Now, that is not Ryan Pfeiffer. Ryan Pfeiffer is avoid that guy with a 10-foot pole. But something in me was nudging me to go talk to him. I just walked over to that guy and as I was walking over to him, I could just see the parents watching me approach them nudging each other and eyeballing me and the coach eyeballing me with intensity. And I walked over to him and I said, Hey coach, I'm really sorry about what happened yesterday. I never should have walked in that field. I'm sorry for my contribution to the conflict that we had yesterday. And I looked at all the parents and I said, Hey, I'm really sorry for what I did. And this coach was like kind of wound up, tight fisted, ready for a fight. Probably thought I was coming over to brawl him. I could just see him loosen up and he just said, thank you. This kind of moment, these moments where we feel this impulse to be kinder, more forgiving, more gracious, more humble than we would otherwise be on our own. These are the impulses of the spirit of Christ. But 
I don't want to paint this with rosy glasses and I don't want to pretend like there isn't a cost to this. And no one knew that better than Martin Luther King Jr. There's a cost to loving our enemies. Okay. We're going to get hurt. We will be disappointed, maybe even betrayed. We could end up losing sleep over tough conversations and we will experience pain. So then why should we do this? What's the point of all this? Why should we bother? And I wanted to give you a couple key reasons. The first is this. If we're not committed to loving our enemies, then there's no way to love anyone. And here's my point. Because everyone at one moment or another is going to feel like an enemy in our life. Even our closest friends, our spouses, even our children or our parents. Think about it for a moment. Right now with what we're going through as a nation and as a society, maybe even here in our church or in your family, when people don't see things our way, when they challenge us, when they disagree with us, or they fail to see our perspective or take our side on something, or choose a lifestyle that cuts against the grain of our deeply held values, it's in these moments that we can experience profound rifts, even divorce, and even civil war. It's in these moments that the seed of an enemy can be planted in our relationships with people even closest to us. And that's what we see happening with Jesus. To go back to John 13, the context for all of this, when Jesus says, love one another, what he's saying is, look, Judas is betraying me. Peter, you're going to deny me. We can't love one another. We can't even love the people who mean the most to us without being committed to loving our enemy. This idea of loving our enemy can feel like pie in the sky, can feel unrealistic, naive, and idealistic. But what if like what Martin Luther King Jr. said is true, that it is the key to the survival and the thriving of our entire civilization because we can't even say we're committed to loving the people closest to us if we are not willing and prepared to love our enemies, because even the people who mean the most to us will have moments where they feel like an enemy to us. I mean, haven't you ever been there with your spouse where you're just like, oh, why did I marry this person? Or, oh, you just want to like wring their neck. Not literally, you know, but you just want to like chew them out and they feel like an enemy. People in our church, we feel like enemies sometimes to each other with our own neighbors and our friends. This is revealing something so core to the gospel. And I don't want to overlook this. This is revealing something so core to the cross and to the gospel. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Let me read that again. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. At the very core, if God hadn't been committed to loving his enemies, he never would have gone to the cross because every one of us begins and starts as an enemy of God. And there are enemies, people in our life that God is calling us to reevaluate those relationships so that our relationship with them might be a conduit of reconciliation. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, get this, I would rather die 
than hate my oppressor. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, when Martin Luther King Jr. said those words, I'd rather die than hate my oppressor, he wasn't just speaking as a civil rights activist. He was speaking as a disciple of Jesus. Where is Jesus calling you to renounce, repent of ways in which we've judged or hated our enemies and to open up your heart to forgiving, to praying, and loving your enemy? Where is that invitation for you? I just want to just end with this one last part of my story with that coach. It's pretty amazing, and it says a lot about the redeeming power of God's love and we're committed to loving our enemies. After I approached him, we, we reconciled. We kind of made peace and to the point where that coach started sort of a spring league, and he formed a team, and he asked my wife and I if we would be willing to allow our son to be on his team. And we thought about it, and we prayed about it, and we decided, yeah, we want to go for that. We want to take that step, and we feel like God's maybe brought our relationship together for a reason. So our son joined the team, and, well, the team did really well and made it to the semifinals. And in that semifinals, it was so close, this coach lost his temper and uh, was kicked out of finishing the tournament because the team won and made it to the finals. And so he wasn't allowed to lead the team in the final game. And I was really shocked when my phone rang and he was calling me, asking me to be the coach. And he said, there's no one else. I would rather be the coach of this team in the final game than you. And what was really cool was I coached the team and yeah, we totally lost the game, but you can lose the battle, but win the war. So the saying goes, I may have lost the game, but I won the war because after that game, that coach with his son and my kid and the rest of the team came to our house and I have this amazing picture with me and that coach and our kids standing arm to arm together. And even now, whenever I look at that picture, it just reminds me of how God can reconcile us with people that we for a moment feel are irreconcilable enemies in our life. And so I want to encourage you. Be open to where God is calling you to love your enemy. That doesn't mean staying in relationships that are abusive. And maybe for some of us, that means just forgiving somebody and being willing to pray for them. For others, it might mean going to the extra two steps that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about to see the good in them and to even move forward with trying to win their friendship. I just want to pray for you. Lord, thank you that you were willing to go to the cross even while we were still yet your enemies. And may your love for us be witnessed and exemplified and shine more brightly than ever in these dark times through your people as we love people one enemy at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.